0: a national nonprofit focused on helping underrepresented college students with the preparation that they need to land strong jobs after they graduate. Now, in this episode, we start with Ami's childhood in the south side of Chicago and move on to when she spent time as a sixth grade teacher and then moved on to spend 13 years at Teach for America, where she worked closely with the founder and CEO, Wendy Kopp. Ultimately, she moved on to found Braven, Now, this is an organization that I wish was around when I graduated or before I graduated college. As several of you know, I got into college with the help of a lot of financial aid and a lot of Pell Grants. But even after getting into a great college, I didn't have much of a clue as to how to get my first job or what skills I needed and the preparation that I should have. My parents were immigrants, and they just didn't know, and so I didn't have much of a guide to ask. I learned through her about a study that showed profiles like me that generally are in the low-income or below-poverty line generally earn $0.66 on the dollar relative to our higher-income graduates from the same school, and that drops to $0.50 on the dollar mid-career. AMI identified that gap and saw that college, though helpful in the path to economic mobility, lacked the education for the skills and the networks and the experiences that you need at that critical point. And so we discuss how she created Braven as a solution. This organization helps with that preparation and ultimately leads to confidence in the practice, and the experiences that they provide, and it gives you this support to secure that first strong job after college. I hope you enjoy this interview with the incredible founder, Ami Eubanks-Davis. Hi, Ami. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining. And just for the listeners, I had met Ami, I don't remember when it was, it was a while back, but I saw you present at a Morgan Stanley conference. And both your story personally, but also Braven's story, right afterwards, there's a line, not surprisingly, waiting to talk to you. I'm like, oh, shoot. And so I didn't have time to actually connect with you then. But I'm so grateful that we're able to connect. Your story itself is just so inspiring, and I can't wait to get more into Braven. But one of the things I like to start the show off is just taking a big rewind and sharing with our listeners where you grew up, because I find that to be so much of an impact to everyone's story. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your story.
1: Yeah, sure. So I actually grew up here in Chicago in incredible neighborhoods that happen to be hardworking neighborhoods where the people in the neighborhoods I grew up with, like myself, identified as Black. And they also happen to be income challenge neighborhoods where the resources coming into the neighborhoods just were not as great as other neighborhoods. And so this really impacts just how I view the world, (laughs) often through the lens of like, I never met anyone in the neighborhoods I grew up in who wasn't like hardworking and doing all that they could to put their children on the path to having a better set of financial circumstances than they necessarily had. And so my parents were the same way, but they happened to buy a piece of property when I was four years old. And between the ages of four and 14, basically, my older sister and I really experienced economic mobility, and not in a theoretical way, in a very practical, and there's more money that comes into a household, there are more opportunities that the young people in those households can have. And so even in comparison to some of my cousins, people I go to church with to this day, it was very clear pretty early on that we were experiencing just a different economic trajectory. And as a result of that, that's what led me to want To after Mount Holyoke, go and to teach for America, to actually pay it forward into the Black community in a very tangible way.
0: Rewinding a little bit. So you'd mentioned from the ages of four to 14, you saw that firsthand. I have a seven and a 10-year-old and a soon-to-be 14-year-old niece. We always brainstorm, both my my siblings and I and, and my husband, how to instill that level of grit, resilience, all those things, but also awareness for children. And so I'm curious for your parents, because it in hindsight, had such an impact for you. But at the time, do you remember thinking, these are my parents, I'm seeing what they're doing, and the application of that economic mobility? Or how much were you aware of it at the time?
1: I thought you were going to ask me a question about my own three children, which I have the exact same conversation with my husband that you all are having in your household. And because of his upbringing as well, is more similar to mine. There's a deep concern, but we won't go down that rabbit hole that I actually have for our children, because I think it's actually hard to replicate that at all. I'm being totally frank. In my case, I think it was different. It was more so the reality of the changing of our economic status. But it was because my parents were like building a business that was fraught with lots of things that happen when you're a black person at the time that they were building a business in real estate where not one bank would lend them money because of redlining. And so they really built their business like brick by brick. It was very, very, very hard. And I think they would never have said that they felt like there was more fluidity in terms of finances or like ease in terms of that. And we heard about that every night at our dinner table. I think it was more so the realization as we started to get older and hit high school and hit college. And then I would argue, and then just having the people that we loved and adored in our first neighborhoods, and then in our families, and then also at church, and other things that we were doing where it was obvious that there was this more economic heft coming into our household in comparison to others. And so at the time, I don't think I really understood what was happening until all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, we're really at a different point. But my parents, I think, you know, they were always like, it's tight. (laughs) Like, no one is actually helping very much. And so I think it was the perseverance and all of that and grit, etc. I think just watching them grind. I mean, they had to grind because for many, many years, it looked completely not possible.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Mount Holyoke. How did you choose that for college?
1: Yeah. So when you grew up in the kind of family that I grew up in, basically, my mom was very resourceful and pretty much would just ask people in her network about what they were doing with their children. And so Mount Holyoke ends up becoming the college choice for me because a woman named Laura at my church, that's where she went to school. And she was actually well ahead of me. And my mom was like, Laura's going to Mount Holyoke. And her mom, Gwen, says it's a great school. And you know what? These schools on the East Coast, they're like really good if any of you all can get into them. So because Laura Rice went to Mount Holyoke, that's really how I end up going to Mount Holyoke. And actually, my older sister ends up going to Bowdoin. And it's because James Hurt went to Bowdoin and Well and Hurt was telling my mom, oh, this school Bowdoin. And I just think it goes to show the power of networks, but also I think what people take for granted in terms of how insular We all end up becoming, we have to rely on the people we know, that there weren't other schools that were really thrown out there for us either. Don't get me wrong. Bowdoin was fantastic for my sister and Mount Holyoke was fantastic for me, but it wasn't like what I'm watching my junior son go through in terms of all the options that one might have and let's really think through blah, 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 blah. That was not the case, but that's how I ended up there. And my mom really didn't want us to go to the large state schools. I think she really feared that those schools at the time weren't doing a great job of getting black students out. And actually, even the historically black colleges and universities, I think in our case, she was like, there's just not going to be enough money given for us to see our way clear to sending you all to one of those. If I'm also being totally honest, at, you know, 17 years old, I did have a good time in high school. Like I was not always the most focused student. So I think she also was like, and you need to go somewhere where you're going to not have so many distractions. And I did know that about myself. And so when I went to visit Mount Holyoke, I'll never forget getting to the campus for like a accepted students weekend. So it was not that I visited the campus beforehand. Like my kid is going all over, seeing all kinds of schools and all the things. And I just remember thinking, oh, this place is very kind. And I actually did know myself well enough where I was like, yeah, if I go to a large state school like the University of Illinois, I might actually get I might drop out because I will just party too hard, et cetera. Like I was like, I do need to get to a place where I think I'm going to be my best academic self as well. And honestly, it was a time in my life where coming out of the high school that I went to. So my parents are having this whole economic mobility journey. We're then impacted by that. They then make a decision to move us out to the suburbs because they were very concerned that we couldn't get into the top magnet high schools that were public. And to be clear, they were convinced and they should have been that my sister would get in And they were also convinced I would not. And so literally, they rubbed their pennies together, move out to the suburbs. And pretty much it was us being like the Jeffersons moving on up, but into a suburban area that was not at all accustomed to black kids coming from Chicago public schools, Chicago neighborhoods. And so my guidance counselor informed my mom that regardless of all the things that I had done academically, I was going to be in remedial classes. My mom was like, absolutely no way. And so as a result, I talk a lot about how confidence shaking that was. And I think then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm not really that smart. And then all of a sudden my mom demands that I then do honors classes, which were really not just tough, but I was one of two black kids and that was lonely. And so I think a part of my performance challenges in high school had a lot to do with stereotype threat. And I think I became very accustomed to that. And I think all of these things from the neighborhoods I grew up in to the high school that I ended up going to really then led me not only to Teach for America, but to braven over time, like just the deep understanding of what it does to someone's psyche. When you're like, someone has told me I don't belong for no real good reason. But then all of a sudden I get into classes where no one is looking like me. And then all of a sudden you just start underperforming and not because you can't, but more so because you're psyching yourself out and because you think people doubt that you can.
0: And what was your first job
1: after college? So I end up going into Teach for America and it wasn't because I like children. Just hang <laughs> <laughs> I just really wanted to do something service oriented. And beca- and I got lucky in that my older sister, which you may be picking up on, was like truly the dutiful older daughter, did everything that the parents wanted, went to law school because my parents were basically like, you will be a doctor, you will be a lawyer, or those are the only two options. My older sister, Rebecca, did that. She ended up becoming a lawyer at the biggest and one of the best law firms in the world, and definitely here in Chicago. And she then climbed really fast and became the youngest partner and the only black partner for a while. And she hated every moment of it. And I got lucky because basically my mom, when I was like, oh, I'm gonna do Teach for America after college, she was like, wait, what? We have not done all that we have done for you to then go into any form of teaching. Are you kidding me? My sister was the one who actually said, you know what, leave her alone. She can apply to law school after she does her two-year commitment, and then she can get in and then go to law school. But actually, if I could rewind the hands of time, I would have done something more service-oriented. So I really wanted to pay it forward and pay it back, I guess, into the Black community in particular. And so that's how I ended up in Teach for American. It's actually how I ended up in New Orleans, because there weren't a lot of choices. It's like, I can tolerate going here. I guess I could go there. And then absolutely, I will not go there. It wasn't like that was about it. And so New Orleans was, I guess I could go there. It seems like a cool place. I'd never been there, but I really did want to teach in Black communities. And so that community allowed for that to happen.
0: I love that. And what grade did you focus on? Sixth grade, social studies and language arts.
1: You had a few choices. I just got placed in that. But it all becomes the most magical journey for me in the sense that I fall in love with my students and their families and that community. I actually was not, now that I've seen exceptional teachers, including Teach for America teachers, an exceptional teacher, but I was super into my students and super into trying to help them navigate into stronger high schools and just very comfortable with them and their families because of my own upbringing. I think I then started to understand, oh, I have range. I can be like all over the place. I can absolutely be in the St. Thomas housing development, picking up a young person, parting them around to the spelling bee on Saturdays, and also... I'm very comfortable now, given the journey I went through high school and at Mount Holyoke, of also being in spaces that were predominantly white. And I realized that I was playing this interesting bridge builder role with my students and their families, trying to help them navigate an educational system that many of them weren't confident in.
0: Love that. I listened to an interview you did where you're like, I was a good teacher, but I wasn't the best teacher. And what you realized was your skill of actually being that liaison and that bridge for adult teaching and learning. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So my second year of teaching, somehow I end up in the role of overseeing this thing that we did. It was really cool called Wonder Week. And basically, Wonder Week was where we took a week off and still created very rigorous academic classes. And we brought in outside volunteers as well to basically teach various different subject matter. So for instance, I ran like one of the classes I taught was called Wonder Magazine because Back in the day, like magazines really were a thing and the students really loved them. And so it was like, we're going to make our own magazine, but it was all about social studies or history and language arts and how do you then sell the magazines? Like, so the math was all in there. And I got put in charge somehow of organizing the whole thing, which also meant working with. Teachers who were far better and also far more senior than I was, figure out what their little blurb was going to be to get the students to want to sign up for their class. And then I had to go recruit some outside volunteers and then basically manage all the operations around this thing. And I just loved it. I just really loved the engagement with the adults. And that started where I started to realize that because for a long time, I was like, I don't really have a thing. I'm not really that talented, whatever. I actually started to realize that I had this talent around adult leadership and management. But it started with through the Wonder Week thing. And then after my second year of teaching, i started to run a community-based program called Summer Bridge at the time. is now called Breakthrough, where it was students teaching students. Then all of a sudden, I was managing high school and college students teaching during the summer. is basically like running a summer school. But then during the school year, there was also an after-school program. And I just really loved the young teachers and really developing them and thinking a lot about them. But it was really a process of discovery. And don't get me wrong, I really loved my students. And that said, watching, and I can call their names to this day, Brenda Benoit and Carla Robertson, I was like, but I am not at that level of excellence as a teacher. But my students went far because I was a super into them. I spent a lot of time and a lot of time trying to make sure they got where they were going. But to watch truly brilliant teachers, I knew I was not that.
0: I love that. And so you were at Teach for America and teaching for about 13 years, more than that. What prompted or catalyzed Braven and the founding of Braven?
1: So one thing you might pick up on is I'm a stayer. Once I get into something that I'm like super into it, And the only reason I actually left New Orleans was because it got to a point where I was like, I am a little tired of commuting to Chicago for vacations in the winter. I would prefer to be leaving Chicago, going somewhere else. And so that then takes me back home and where I have a chance meeting with Wendy Kopp, who created Teach for America. And she actually knew me, which was interesting because she would come to New Orleans and the executive director of Teach for America would actually bring her through my classroom because even though I was very insecure about being a good teacher, I guess I was doing something right. And so Wendy would come and she saw my classroom, then I got asked to speak at something. And so we met each other a few times. And so she was in Chicago for an alumni event about the next strategic plan for Teach for America. And I got invited and I'm sitting at the table. And basically, she's asking this question like this two year commitment, people have a problem with it. What do you all think? Blah, blah, blah. And she gets to me and I'm like, I don't understand why there's a problem with two-year commitment, because this is a commitment of a lifetime. And after that session ends, she sprints around the table and says, why have you never come to work at Teach for America? Because I could have worked at Summer Institute, et cetera, et cetera. And I was very honest with her that I came through Teach for America early on. And as a Black person who comes from the communities in which I'm teaching, I really felt like Teach for America did have a long way to go in terms of diversity, equity and inclusion. And I didn't, other than my college roommate who was in Teach for America with me, I really didn't feel an affinity towards the other core members. I felt like a lot of them came from very privileged backgrounds, which is great, but I didn't feel like the organization was setting everybody up to then navigate across lines of difference. Teach for America has grown dramatically in this area. But basically, Wendy was like, so that is a good point. So you should come to Teach for America and actually help solve that. And what I knew at the time, because I had been running Breakthrough and still doing teaching at a private school and very connected to all these young people from humble beginnings, was that Teach for America had figured out how to be a high-performing nonprofit. It just had. And so whether or not my personal experience was getting it or not was very different than what started to become my deep curiosity about how do you get more nonprofit organizations to go on full throttle in order to help more young people reach their highest heights. And so I ended up going to Teach for America to work directly for Wendy to help us do new site development work. Then all of a sudden, I'm like helping to run the regional operations teams and work I'm running half the regions at the time. And then I was going to go to business school and I was on a plane with Wendy and I was like, I'm going to go to business school. Seems like I should go get some degree because by the way, I had gotten into law schools, fabulous law schools, was paying seed deposits for like three years. My parents were like, fit to be tied how are you in these amazing schools and you are not going? And I was like, there are no kids on the walls of my sister's office. Why would I do that with myself? So anyway, Wendy says to me, why would you go to business school when you're basically helping to grow and scale on large nonprofits that we've ever seen in education? This is business school if not better. And so I was like, well, I'm going to need a role that I feel like I'm really running more of the business over time, I think. And so that's how I end up in the people work at Teach for America. And I won't take us down that rabbit hole, but I was definitely afraid as a black woman that to actually leave the line of managing the PL of TFA was gonna hurt me over time. But thankfully I did it. But she made me all kinds of promises in terms of the kind of title I could walk out with if it didn't work and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so I end up being on the senior team of Teach for America for 13 years, eight of those years running the people work. And what happens, and again, this is the power of being a stayer is that all of a sudden Teach for America is recruiting upwards of 50,000 young people a year. There are another 30,000 people applying to the staff a year. we never talked about that. That's a pipeline of 80,000 people that I'm watching because I need to have a diverse team at Teach for America because I'm there to remember the diversity challenges that I pointed out to help solve those on the staff side. And basically, all of a sudden, my first set of sixth graders graduate from college the year of Hurricane Katrina. And I'm like, wow, you all... could be having a hard time getting a job in New Orleans, but none of you are living in New Orleans. You're in Houston, you're in Atlanta, you're up here in Chicago, you've gone to fabulous schools, and you are not actually matriculating out strong. Like There's question marks around, will you be employed? And if you are employed, it seems like you are working minimum wage jobs with a bachelor's degree. And because I was their former sixth grade teacher, I was like, college debt is good. It's good debt. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, and you're shackled with debt. This is a mess. And so basically what you start to see in the Teach for America data was that there's this group of young people who are on free or reduced lunch in K-12 and had gotten their way through college, done everything right, who were actually struggling to get over our selection bar. And we were seeing them in numbers of thousands. And so there was a lot that Teach for America needed to do and did do to actually make sure that we reduced the bias in the model That was real. But I was like, no one else is going to do that (laughs) out here in the world of work, whether that's other nonprofits, for profits, or the government. And that's really where Braven starts to come into focus.
0: Some of the stats I thought were really compelling when I learned about Braven and then was able to actually get my firm to participate because it's such a compelling organization, mission, cause. But the stats that initially I found so interesting were something 56% are first generation college goers and only up to 30% get good first jobs, or go to grad school. Can you share a little bit more stats that you, th- you think are really compelling that the listener might find? Interesting? Oh, my gosh.
1: I mean, this was, I think, the big shocker, not only for me, but I would argue a community of people who had said through the doors of college would come a strong first job. And actually, we were watching these students climb the mountain to college, and there was a cliff on the back end that none of us knew were there. And so basically what we started to realize was there was the data in the world of Teach for America, but there was no external data at that time. Eventually, the Brookings Institute does a study that basically says that a first-gen low-income student is likely to earn $0.66 on the dollar to their higher-income peer. By mid-career, that's $0.50 on the dollar. And you're just sitting there like, how is this possible? But then we start realizing from looking at a bunch of work by economists that there's this thing called the scarring effect, that basically if you don't come out earning that full dollar and in a high quality role, it never catches up, it actually gets worse. And I just was like, this is crazy. This is crazy in a country that is built off of quality when it comes to opportunity for all, but also these are young people who've done everything right, everything every teacher, preacher, parent told them to do. And that they are climbing the mountain to college and there's a cliff on the back end And honestly, how much they had done to get through the doors of college and out the doors of college to have this happen on the back end, it's like the last mile where you just faint. That's unfortunate. And so I started to really believe that this was a solvable problem. And I started to realize over time that there was no one really looking at it and no one really doing anything about it, because if you have endured, going back to my own story, my family and watching my parents and all of their perseverance to overcome lots of racial discrimination in terms of lending, et cetera. If you have endured all of that, then you should be able to get a strong job, but it was going to require something different in higher education, almost writ large, I would say, in terms of making sure there was the space for a young person who does not have the same level of a social capital network coming in from their dining room or from their kitchen table. It was going to require there to be a course where young people could actually take the course and learn the skills, the mindsets, honestly overcome imposter syndrome. So going back to my own personal story, imposter syndrome, but then also have a network a network that was going to work on their behalf. And so that's where this whole model of literally it was the Teach for America competency model, not joking, Wendy, allowed us to test if we taught it. We're a bunch of former teachers and talent nerds. What have we taught what it would actually take to get into Teach for America? Would a group of students who are not likely on our radar just simply because of where they go to school, could they actually come over our recruiter's bar? whether or not they're likely to get in. And so we basically started to test this model of putting students in a group of five to eight, teaching them the Teach for America competency model with a young person from the professional workforce of Teach for America, and then sending them over to recruiters who didn't know them at all. And all of a sudden they were like, oh yeah, yeah, this student from San Jose State, we would love to have them. And so that's when I started to realize it was really solvable, that if we could get it baked inside of higher ed, have social capital built in as well that we could absolutely watch students and this is what has happened in five semesters shatter. The economic sound barrier where 75% of them at this point in time, because we start out with 17 students, we've now hit 7,400 students and by 2026, we'll be at 15,000 students. 75% of them out their parents in five semesters in terms of their parents' starting point. And according to Raj Chetty and the other big American economists, that's what it looks like to be on the path to the American dream.
0: Well done. Well, congrats. I know you just celebrated your 10th birthday for Raven. Fantastic it's on a successful anniversary. decade. Listeners can't see, but you have a beautiful logo of Braven. Can you share the name process, the logo, because I'm sure in that defined and describes Raven so beautifully, but I'm curious how that evolved for you.
1: Yeah. So we're very intentional in the world of Braven, And so we get this going. It was four pilots. We did a lot of experimenting under a different name. And all of a sudden, I was like, "All oh, my good friends in K-12 have all of the great names out there. all of them, every single name that could be great is gone. And so I was spending a lot of time at the beginning and still do. But at that point, just trying to convince people that this was a thing on airplanes and go-go in flight. I was on go-go in flight a bunch. And then I live in Chicago. And there's this hotel called the Witt Hotel that was like a fancy place to be. And somehow I discovered that those two things were named by the same person. I was like, oh, these are cool names this person is coming up with. So I literally cold call him. It turns out he was in the Bay Area. I like cold call him at 8 a.m. Chicago time. I didn't know where he was. Picks up the phone, not joking, like, who are you and why are you waking me up? And I was like, here's what I'm up to. And I love your help. I love what you've named. And I didn't know anything about the naming business. It turns out it's a whole business. And he was like, nobody calls anybody anymore. Just that you called me and that you called me and you didn't just send out like mass emails. I'm actually going to help you name this at cost of just the legal fees to figure out if we can get it in the field of education. So we go through this whole interesting process and he let me know, I only name things. I do not do any branding or marketing. All I do is name things. And when we went through the process, he discovered that as he talked to me and the team and some of the early team members and board members at Braven, we always talked about the collective. This is not only in higher ed or only with employers or only one little organization. It's a collective, but also it's about the American dream and the American promise. And so the last line of the star Spangled Banner has home of the brave in it. And he was like, and we're going to put an in on it, make it up a word and make it collective. So that's where the name comes from. Then the logo is actually the African wisdom knot it's one of our core values go together to go further. I really believe that this was and had to be a partnership model that what we were staring down was a solvable problem, but we were going to have to operate inside of systems that were where the students were, that's higher ed, and also systems with where we wanted them to go, which is employer partners. And so that not, and the ability to understand that we're only as good as every single strand of that knot was really an important, intentional move to say, this is not about one person, one organization. It's really this collective effort.
0: Oh, beautiful. I'm so glad I asked that. And I love the logo. It turned out beautifully and the name. So one of the videos I watched about Braven resonated with me in that I was a Pell Grant recipient. My parents are immigrants who grew up on welfare. And I was lucky enough that my parents didn't have resources that I got into college on Pell Grants because we just couldn't afford it. Most of the people that work in my industry have no idea what Pell Grants are, or how that works. And so I think that gives me a different perspective. I definitely am a lot more empathetic to that whole course because it was so difficult for us. And I wish there were so many things I would have known at 17 or 18 to get into college. The students you work with, what is the program and structure and design of what you give to them from an education perspective, from a training perspective that we can just share with some of our listeners who might not know what those kids don't have access to?
1: And so let me just start with what the Pell Grant is. The Pell Grant goes, in the United States of America, to students whose families are living at or below the poverty level. And it's really below the poverty level. And basically, if your family is earning $70,000 or less, you are Pell Grant eligible. And that amount has gone up a little with inflation, et cetera, but still basically for a family of four, that's not a lot of money when you really get your head around it. And so it's been a critical lever for getting a lot of young people through higher education that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. What I think people take for granted if they have no understanding of what it takes to finance higher education, but also then what families are actually doing as a unit to get a young person through is just heroics on all sides. But often a young person who's on the Pell Grant has to do some form of work. It might be work study or it might be a straight up job. So many Braven students go to school full time and they work full time. And that is one reason it became so important for Braven to be built inside of higher education as a course, because otherwise the students have no time. We even have a college partner where many of the students go to school full time, they go to work full-time, sometimes times two, they have like a day job and a night job, because often this group of students is also helping to contribute into their family unit in various ways. And so that is one of the biggest breakthroughs that we accidentally had, was actually having a set of deans at San Jose State say, even though you've never talked to us, we're hearing from our students at this leadership and career development course that has no name, (laughs) that they're taking is really, really impactful for them. And we want to really partner with you to see how we could scale this to far more students because it's a 26,000 university footprint in terms of undergrads. Close to 50% of those students are on the Pell Grant. And they were saying, look, there's no way that we can go at this alone. We need a partnership because... These were associate deans in the business school, the computer science school, which is under the science school and a senior level faculty member of the engineering school. So these are deans that actually are gonna grant degrees that should have currency in your Silicon Valley market. And they were seeing for themselves that their students who identified as women and or from underrepresented minority backgrounds were not getting the same quality of job as a student that might be coming out of Stanford. And so building it inside of higher education became critical to honestly opening up the access point for this group of students. And so the second thing I would say that became critical was just this deep understanding that i and I absolutely had watching my own students when I was like, "How are we here where you have graduated? You had no internships? You didn't even know to have an internship?" This power of bringing in employer partners and people from employer partners to coach the teams of five to eight students. And then even in the rest of the two and a half year experience, give them professional mentors if they need it. Make sure that they have a bunch of mock interviewers basically shattering open their social capital networks is real. I mean, in this country, and honestly, probably throughout the world, who you know matters, but it's who knows you that matters more. So we watch students in the course not know what a LinkedIn profile is at all. Not know what an internship is either. And then basically... Fill out their LinkedIn profile. Do it at an academic level that gets them a grade, so it's rigorous. But then start to have a few connections from their like coach and their cohort. Let's say they have like 22 in the first couple weeks. By 15 weeks later, we have a student Monique 500 connections at the end of 15 weeks. You're basically just recreating a system that's often invisible to high income people. And so we do that, but we also teach students project planning, how to manage yourself a project in a team, how to network and communicate for the workforce, which is different. How do you work in a team on a workforce team? How do you have asset-based leadership development which is basically a form of how do you protect yourself from stereotype threat? Because it's just like me when I was sitting in these honors and AP classes in high school and I was telling myself a story that was real looking at everyone around me, like I don't belong. And by the way, my guidance counselor told me I didn't belong. What Dr. Claude Steele in a great book called Whistling Vivaldi really discovers is when you put women in a course together that is about computer science, that they will then realize, oh, we got this, we can do this, we can do this. And then they do it And then they go into a course that might be them alone or them with another woman. And they still sit up straight and say, I can do this because they had that experience. And so it's this whole method of really putting our students in a moment of intensity with other people like them and a lot of support where they actually see, oh, I can do this so that when they go off into the internship or into the full-time job and they're not other people like them, they're not telling themselves a story that they can't do it. And that they absolutely belong because they've earned the right. So that's how we have constructed the course. But it looks like talks like quacks like a duck because it's come over nine academic bars when it comes to the faculty senate, et cetera. But inherent in it is a lot of intentionality around how do you get this kind of a young person to really have the skills, the networks, and the mindsets that they need to really flourish after college.
0: Amazing. So you've trained and educated over 7,000 on the way to 15,000 soon. If you could summarize, because I was one of those students you mentioned in the sense of I worked two part-time jobs during college and I didn't get the best grades because i it's no excuse, but I was just tired and I didn't make time to study as much as I could have and all those things. And so I live with this regret, but also the idea of that stereotype threat of, oh, shoot, mm-hmm. if I don't have certain grades or I won't be pursued a certain way. And so there was that fear, at least on my side. And I didn't know what I didn't know in terms of what skills I needed or what other things I needed from a social education perspective. If you could summarize maybe the most critical skills or talents that students don't have and that you train the most or you focus on the most for them.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go there. But let me just actually acknowledge, I think people do not understand how hard it is to work through school. I mean, I just think about myself today, flying in on some early flight, being out because I need to for my job till 1130 at night, I can't barely construct a text message at moments like I am just physically exhausted. And I think people do not understand that that is not a student being at all any form of lazy. It's like you just only have so much energy that you can get. And when it comes down to like, am I going to help my family financially? That is what ends up having to win. And so I would say in the course, again, that's why it's so important to me. And we will not move into a new school partner unless there are the course credits so that students have the time and the space to do it as a part of their academics. But I would say in the course, here's the thing that I believe we do the best, but what I'm going to tell you what the students always say. I actually think what we do is we create the preparation that leads to the outcome, just like any athlete. Basically, we have them doing mock interviews three times. Well, it's just like shooting free throws. If you're a basketball player, if you're just standing at that line, you're just shooting them, shooting them, you're going to all of a sudden have a very high percentage of getting that ball into the basket. Same way with us. I'm all about at bats, at bat, at bat. What we want is you to feel ready to go when it is game time. And so I think that is the thing that we really do. We get you prepared your materials, your artifacts, you know what a task interview is. Because if you don't have parents who you know what a performance-based task is, how do you know what you're supposed to do when someone says that you need to do that in an interview? So we get them really, really prepared. And I think preparation leads to confidence. I just do. That said, when you talk to students, they're like, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. I just felt more confident in my coach. And they were like rooting me on and giving me real direct feedback. But with love, we're going to make it happen, but this needs to change. This is why you need to do this in this way, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I think Braven really is magical at is the preparation and the preparation that leads to confidence. And then that confidence leading you to say to yourself, even if people are telling me a story, because there is real sexism, racism, bias, et cetera, for real, that I am ready. I'm ready to go just like anyone else. And I think that we've really figured out how to do that within the academic setting.
0: Well, I can test to the mock interviews because I was able to participate, and my company was too, in the mock sessions of two of the New York campuses. And what was amazing is the first interview I did, you could tell they're nervous and they were unrehearsed, but they were prepared as much as they could be. And then after 25 minutes, they were crushing it. But the third interview I did in that series was so different. And they said, well, the first two gave me this feedback, that feedback, and they iterated so quickly. I loved that. And so our feedback at the firm, because about a dozen people did it, was all the same. That was selfishly so enjoyable because you see not only the feedback that was helpful, but it improved within just an hour of that. And so I got so much more out of it. And the students Mm -hmm. seemed to also, but it was a really enjoyable program. I highly recommend people do it. And I will definitely link Braven's info into the show notes. Mm -hmm. Maybe one last question before I pivot to personal questions for you. The first 10 years were an absolute success. What are your next 10 years of a goal for Braben if you have it or if you can share it?
1: Yeah, I would say the first 10 years were an accidental success because when we got started, there was nothing like us in the market and we were a nonprofit on purpose. And basically what I didn't realize as a black woman social entrepreneur was that even though I had helped Wendy and a bunch of incredible other people build what will be one of the most storied educational nonprofits ever, That did not still give me enough credibility with donors who don't look like me. I do not look like their daughters or their nieces. And so literally the convince campaign that we had to go on, to get resources in the door to start building Braven was a far greater challenge, sort of like my parents with redlining, than I thought. And just Wendy Kopp and other people like her husband, Richard Barth, who's our board chair, who identify as white, what they did to say to the donor community, like, no, seriously, this idea, this woman, what they're doing, you should invest in it. But it took us convincing people that it was actually important because otherwise the going in assumption also was that this group, they don't need it. They don't need it. We need to focus on students. Don't get me wrong. And there should be focus on students that are not on track, not only into college, but just not on track in terms of having a life of meaning and a life that is going to be a life of pride. But that that was actually this weird dichotomy where it was like, well, this group of students just does not need this in order to accelerate. And so that's one thing that I learned over time was how important it was to be in the first 10 years on the convince campaign, but then also to be diligent about data and about outcomes. And honestly, what you even said about the mock interviews is in saying to people, oh, and by the way, we can do this really fast. (laughs) This is not going to take All the years that it should take when you're teaching sixth graders, which it took me a decade to see that something was not quite right or wasn't going to be as right. We can do it in five semesters. But that's what I learned in the first 10 years was like we became a success. But it was because of our discipline, our intentionality, but also just saying, here's the outcomes and here's the story. Now, as I look to the future, we have some wind beneath our wings. So that's exciting. But now we understand how solvable of a problem this is. There are 1.3 million young people a year going to college on the Pell Grant that absolutely should come out strong. It is a tragedy in this country if we cannot help them get where they wanna go. And it's actually bad for them, it's bad for their families, it's bad for their communities, it's actually bad for America, it just is. And so our goal is to get to 80 to 100,000 young people so that there can be a 20 to 25 percentage point uplift in terms of strong economic attainment, which will then produce 15 to $20 billion in lifetime earnings for our students, their families, so that they are actually able to live out the American dream, but actually for the country to have them as viable in the American workforce and from a leadership standpoint in nonprofits, for-profits, and the government is nothing just but good. And then finally, like when I think about that number, 80 to 100,000, when I first started Braven, the number that I had in mind that I did want to get beyond was 90,000. And that was on purpose because there are 90,000 young people who are considered to be in the pipeline to prison because they are not reading by third grade. They're not doing algebra by eighth grade. And I felt like it was so bad for the communities in which I grew up in to not have a counter narrative of the pipeline of promise. I also thought that was bad as well. And I wanted to make sure, and I believe what we'll do this in the next 10 years, that we actually surpass the pipeline to prison with
0: the pipeline to promise. Love that so much. Well, I'll definitely make sure to link Raven's website to the show notes because admittedly, before I saw you at that conference, I hadn't heard about it. And so I'm so grateful that our paths crossed and that Eagle, my company, was able to participate so I could learn a lot more about it. And your team, by the way, I've been able to talk to a handful of them. They are fantastic. And even virtually, they're just an injection of energy. And I think that their purpose and their passion really comes across. So I'm very, very proud to be Uh, Supporter and uh, partner to Braven.
1: Thank you you for all of your support. And yes, Braven has an incredible team. We're at 150 people. And if you just go on our website and look at the team, it's an incredible and diverse team up and down all throughout because we're also trying to prove that, you know what, we're good as Americans. We're going to be good as a country as we keep doing what we've always done, which is being the place where you can come from anywhere and be thriving and end up somewhere else. So you can have a different starting point than your ending point. And that's what this country has always said is one of our most founding ideals.
0: So I'll switch over to the questions I asked everybody, starting with who or what inspires you? For me in particular it was my mom. I mean, so I didn't tell this
1: part of my story, but the reason my family also ended up in pretty strange and hard economic straits in the beginning was that my biological dad actually passed away when I was two and a half pretty suddenly, of a rare form of cancer that usually it's leukemia that usually impacts children. But when it impacts adults, especially when he had it, it was fatal. And literally, he was in his final semester of dental school. They thought they were on the path to the American dream. And then literally the rug gets whipped out from under my mom and she's got two little kids and no income coming in and goes back to school. And this is how this whole real estate thing, she meets my dad now, et cetera, starts to become. So definitely she's my biggest inspiration because I just watched her literally have such a body blow and then come back from that.
0: Just given the name of the show, can you share your most impactful struggle that turned into a growth moment for you? And a lot of people, whether it's their professional career and what catalyzed their success there or even childhood, but it has really varied in terms of what time period has really been most impactful for books. I'm curious for you, what has been your biggest struggle or failure that inevitably I'm assuming led to growth? Yeah. So I
1: mentioned earlier how I work for Wendy Kopp, who started Teach for America right after Princeton and is just a force of nature in general. And Wendy's, very clear on goals and outcomes, and people need to be hitting their goals, which was great. I mean, she was an amazing mentor and manager to work for for years. And that said, I got to know her so well that I knew when someone had missteps and that that might lead to them not being quite the right fit in their role or at Teach for America, et cetera. And honestly, when I come into the people role, we were really struggling at Teach for America to make sure that we had a team that looked like the communities in which we were working. And basically, I get into that role and I start to articulate that I thought that there was something not quite right in the culture of Teach for America that was making black and brown people feel like they couldn't be successful. And I show up at an executive director meeting. So this is like the most important people who run the ground for Teach for America from the rural Mississippi Delta to New York City, to the Bay Area, to the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. And I'm basically like, yeah, I think the problem is us. (laughs) I think there's something more that we need to be doing to make sure that we have a culture that is going to allow for people to thrive. And Wendy was like, wait, what? You just walked in this room of these important people and said the problem was us with no data, nothing to actually prove that this is the case. And she like went up one side of me, came down the other side of me. And I literally was like, I'm going to get fired. This is the end of my career. Hopefully she'll still grant me that fancy title. So business school. And thankfully we recovered, but what I learned in that, because then six months later, I then went back to that group with data, with the retention data, with the promotion data, with the data on who was going out of performance improvement plans. And we had double digits of African-American staff members, not thriving at Teach for America on the staff. And in a four year time period with that data, we made it possible where there was no gap between black staff members and anyone else. And we basically increased the diversity of Teach for America by 240%. And so then all of a sudden, we had like Fortune 500 companies and Fortune magazines and the top 100 places of work were like making the list and all the things. And I'm kind of like, why? And they're like, you actually did the thing that is really hard for most companies to do, which I always said was actually what people didn't realize is we retained people. People thought it was the recruitment thing. I was like, no, we retained. We even had people boomerang back black people who had left teach firm America were like, Oh, this is a new place. I'm going to come back. And so that was a really hard moment for me professionally, where I was like, I actually might get fired. But a real teaching moment, and I think plays in the braven in terms of my relentlessness around data, while also still having the moments of like, I think something's off. That's also important to have that lived experience also be true.
0: If you could speak to Ami after she graduated college, what would you share with her? It took me a while to hear this from
1: someone because I was very worried about my mom and dad. They were like the financial trouble you're going to be in. Like, how have you done this to yourself and us? I can't blame them now that I'm a fear and I totally get it. It took a while for a woman actually from Mount Holyoke, an alum who said, you know what, now that I'm at this place in my life and I look at my friends, it is those who took the path less traveled that are actually the happiest, most fulfilled and actually most successful and what they do. And I wish that I had been able to say that to a younger version, because I think for many, many years, I felt a lot of guilt about just wanting to try to be the best teacher I could be, try to lift my students and their families into new heights when it came to their academic outcomes, et cetera. Et cetera. Like I felt like that wasn't good enough. And actually, it was and it turned out to be shattering for me career wise too, and deeply gratifying. I tell people, all the time, I've never worked a day in my life Someone asked me on the team the other day, we have a new hire call. They were like, well, what are your hobbies? I was like, I know this is going to sound strange, but work is like a hobby for me. Like truly, I find so much joy and gratification in it, even when it's like hard and messy and you know, all the things.
0: So, You had mentioned that you have three kids. How has creating, launching and continuing and strengthening Braven impacted your parenting?
1: One, I think, absolutely, I believe that it is important for us to understand as parents that we actually don't do our children the best service to not allow them to fail at moments, to not allow them to actually feel the burn of, oh my gosh, I've got to figure my way out of something that is so hard to do when you are parents like us, to not want to reach in, helicopter, be the lawnmower parent. And yet I will say unequivocally, and I have some moments with my own children where I'm like straight up facepalm, oh my God, what are you doing? at moments where people are like, I am so sorry that your kid did that. And I'm like, I am too. And yet I often say, I am very happy to watch when a Davis child gets knocked down and has to figure out how to get back up. Because if they don't, I really have not yet seen the person who then really becomes successful over time. So I really try to remind myself of that when, you know, I don't want them to have a complete train wreck, but for them to come off the track I think is actually okay to have to figure out how to get themselves back on track and have to ask for help is a part of what makes people great. It's the Michael Jordan thing. It's like I shot however many shots that I missed at game time. And it was because of that, that I ended up being a champion. I really do
0: believe that. A thousand percent. I have 20 more questions to ask you, but I know we're limited on time. So I'll stick with just maybe two. You'd mentioned a lot of content profiles, research studies. Is there any that you recommend maybe one, two, three of them that are highly impactful, whether it's on talent retention or any type of group stats, but anything you'd like to share from a content perspective? One book you mentioned was from Cloud Steel, but I would love to just kind of share that reference if you could.
1: Whistling and Vivaldi is great. Whenever you're thinking about stereotype threat, white sprinters in the Olympics, you got to have them train with black sprinters and then realize, oh, I'm just as fast, etc. Same way with women in the sciences, black kids in AP classes. If you can create the environment in which there's a competition that people are feeling and then performing in, then all of a sudden when they're out in the world where stereotype threat might leak in, they actually fight it off. That's one book. The other is actually an interesting article. It's dated now by Dr. David Gresge out of Stanford School of Poverty and Inequality called Our Children Will Be Professors Too. It really starts to make people understand that often you choose your work based on what you've seen and what you've lived And that's why something like Braven is so important in terms of just the exposure that our students get to this network of people who make them see jobs they otherwise would have never seen. I think that one's really interesting. A lot of Raj Chetty's opportunity insights, if you just go to his website, it's really good on economic mobility. But in particular, he's beginning to come out with some research around the power of these higher education institutions that are not the most well-resourced ones to absolutely catalytically put large numbers of young people on the path to the American dream, like the CUNY system, where we have two schools, like HBCUs, where we have two schools, like the Cal State system, like Rutgers, Newark, et cetera, and how important those schools are actually to the nation. And to the nation, honestly, seeing itself as what we are, which is the land of opportunity for all. Those are three things that I would definitely say, those are good reads or good things to poke around. I'm going to give a plug to our LinkedIn and our Twitter feed. Like we do a lot of just trying to make sure that people understand that this is a solvable problem, that it's a win, win, win for our students, for their university and higher ed partners, our college partners, and also for employers, for profits, nonprofits, like we can all win in a polarized moment that we seem to always be in. And this is actually something where we all can come together. As I wear purple today, we are purple. Raven is very purple.
0: I love that. And last question. and There are so many more. And I didn't even get to talk about you being an Obama Foundation fellow, all this stuff. But maybe last question is, what's next for Ami Eubanks-Davis?
1: Braven, braven, and more braven. I'm a stayer. I'm like, yeah, you all be wheeling me out of here, hopefully, in my faith, God willing. I get to live a long time. I am just addicted to the ability to say in five semesters, we can have young people out earn their parents, they can shatter the economic sound barrier. So I'll just keep doing that and amplifying our work and the work of these incredible higher education partners and employer partners. But that's what I envision for myself. And sure, Obama fellowships, McNulty prizes, all of those things might also come as a result, but it will all be for me, in service of why I even started this journey, which was to make sure that young people like myself over time have a real shot at what this country has to offer.
0: Well, amazing. I look forward to all the incredible impact you're going to have, Not in addition to the one you've already made. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.